Scripture reading this morning can be found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is God's word. My uh, iTunes or my iPhone, so we're talking about iTeach, has a fairly eclectic selection. Uh, foremost is U2, perhaps their greatest album being The Joshua Tree, though actually I rather prefer their pre-famous material like War. More recently I have Coldplay, and as far as I can see, their latest Milo Xyloto. How do you pronounce that? Is it M? I don't know. Funny little symbol, MX or whatever. That's the best they've done yet. If I will listen to Mozart, there's no beating his requiem, which I once listened to in a near mesmerized state when I was at Yale. Though for theology, I suspect you too is better. <laughs> which may not be saying much, I don't know. Now, of course, all of the Bible is God's word, but of all of the teaching of the Bible, this is perhaps the most important. In the Bible, there's no higher teaching than that of Jesus himself, though, of course, as I say, it's all his word nonetheless. And of Jesus' teaching, none is more significant, of course, than this Sermon on the Mount. It is without parallel. It is also the most misunderstood teaching of the Bible. Gandhi, of course, said that he particularly admired Christianity at this point, though not in other areas, at the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, because its ethic appealed to him, love your enemy and all the rest. And, of course, we all understand why that appealed to him, But ever since he said that, we have often misunderstood that what is unique about the sermon is its ethic. That is not true. Jesus is simply rightly interpreting the Old Testament. And in fact, many of the things that Jesus says you can find in other philosophies, even other religions. Now, what's especially important about the Sermon on the Mount is not its ethic, but its loyalty. A rabbi who uh, heard uh, the sermon uh, read in a discussion, after listening to the sermon read out, and uh, by the way, that's a very good thing to do if you haven't done it, just read it through at a sitting from all the way through from chapter 5 to the end of 7. After he'd done this, this rabbi responded like this, Who does this person think he is? 
That is the point of the sermon. We are meant to ask that question. Who on earth is this? You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Whoever puts these words of mine into practice. And the same is even true of these blessings, which uh, they interpret correctly the Old Testament. But as you'll say a little bit later, they show us that all blessing is fulfilled in him. So what is unique about the uh, sermon is not its ethic, but its loyalty. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of heaven. He's been going around preaching the gospel of the kingdom, chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's going around preaching this gospel of the kingdom. And then he gathers the crowds and the uh, disciples. He goes up uh, to a mountain, and one greater than Moses begins to teach about what is the blessing and who has the blessing of the kingdom of heaven. It is the king teaching about the kingdom of heaven and how to enter that kingdom is the particular theme of the first four Beatitudes. Jesus is teaching with authority. He begins to teach, and right at the end of the sermon, if you go to chapter 7 and uh, verse uh, 29, they are amazed at his teaching. Why? Verse 29, not because of his ethic, because of his person. He had authority. It's all intended to make us fall on our knees before the king of the kingdom of heaven. And you say, that doesn't sound very practical. It is the most practical thing. Every time I've taught through the Sermon on the Mount, I have been amazed at the sheer authority of Jesus' words here. One uh, man who heard me preach on one of the Beatitudes, I've preached through the Sermon on the Mount a number of different times, and one man heard me teach on the, the blessed of the meek, a whole sermon just on that phrase. He was an ex-Vietnam vet, and he had uh, various um, issues related to his experiences there. And he told me afterwards that now he understood where to look for help. His life was transformed at a most practical level. So as you tell your friends about this sermon, not my sermon, this sermon, I want you to understand that it's practical. It's practical because it leads us to Jesus, and that is what we need so much today in Christianity, not just evangelistically, though that is true, it is for the crowds, not just the disciples not just evangelistically, also for the disciples. For us disciples these days are mesmerized by human personality, by communication techniques, by what people wear, whether they wear a suit or not, what the style of music is, not by the doctrine, but the decor. Not by the person of Jesus. Oh, we've heard that before. If you think that, I suspect you have not really heard him. You do not say about your wife, oh, I've met her before, I don't need to meet her anymore. 
Come with me and discover this blessing of the kingdom. There are four steps here in the Beatitudes. Uh, Step number one is uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this would have been a shock for the original hearers, for they thought the kingdom of heaven was all political and military and physical. It is also a shock for us. For while we perhaps in this country do not think the kingdom of heaven is any more military or political, we do think it is physical, and perhaps some of us think it is political. Jesus does not say that the kingdom of heaven comes to those who vote a certain way. He does not even say that the kingdom of heaven comes to those who are spiritually rich. In fact, the very reverse. It's rather a shock to think that if we take Jesus' words here seriously, that if we came in this morning thinking that we were spiritually rich, we need to ask ourselves whether we are even in the kingdom of heaven. No, it's the poor in spirit who have the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a technical issue here with uh, Luke's gospel where Jesus says, blessed are the poor, and in Matthew's gospel, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The reality is they're both exactly the same thing, a translation probably of what Jesus originally said in Aramaic. For the poor in the Old Testament, originally it meant those who were physically impoverished, but it came to mean anyone who cried out to God for need, who recognized their poverty. So the psalm says, this poor man called... And the Lord heard him, as we say. Look at that poor guy over there. Not necessarily that he is materially poor, but he recognizes his need. And so this poverty in spirit is to recognize our need before God. If you come in here thinking, I've heard it all before, you're not poor in spirit. You're not coming in here desperate. As Jesus will finish the four Beatitudes we're looking at this morning, hungry and thirsting, you're coming in here already filled, and you know uh, a glass of water, here's a plastic, it's not a glass, it's a plastic cup, look at that, it squidges. Well, in this plastic cup, there's room for what, an inch of water? But if you want to be filled with God, you've got to empty it of yourself. Poor in spirit. That's where it begins, where you recognize that you are needy of God. But there's another step. Jesus gets even more radical, this paradoxical path to happiness. See, blessing, the Beatitudes, to be blessed biblically, not, you know, a blessing at a meal or something like that. To be blessed biblically is to be declared truly happy. That's what it means. God is saying that is what is really happy, successful. That is what is the truly blessed, happy life, even if it does not feel happy. Well, it gets even more radical then, doesn't it? For to be happy is to be, well, unhappy. Blessed are those who mourn. What is Jesus saying here? What Jesus is saying here is not simply to recognize our spiritual need, not simply to realize that we need to die to ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus, not only that, but as it were to go to the funeral of ourselves. So many people who are trying to get over sin in their lives don't take this step. Oh, they realize they're a sinner. Yeah, I have needs. 
I know I knew God, and it's just trite. Have you mourned over your sin? You say, well, that doesn't sound very passionate or happy. But you see, the Bible's understanding of happiness begins this morning. There must be darkness and night before the dawn. The seed must be sown before there is and die to itself before there is a new plant. Now, it can be misunderstood, of course, this uh, morning. It's not a fake kind of Puritanism, you know, the frozen chosen. Huh. I had a story of uh, one little girl came across a favorite horse, and she said, Oh, mummy, that horse must be a Christian. It has such a long face. It's not that, but it does speak against our trite, happy, clappy, superficial Christianity where we always have to be passionate about everything. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the passionate, for they will be comforted. He said, blessed are those who mourn. In fact, it's interesting, in one place in John's Gospel, where Jesus is criticized by the religious leaders, uh, they say to him, you're not yet 50 and you've seen Abraham. Well, the interesting thing about that is he was only just 30, and yet he looked older. He was called, wasn't he, man of sorrows. And in fact, in the parallel passage in Luke, it doesn't say, blessed are those who mourn. It says, woe to you who laugh now. Now, I'd like to crack a joke, and I'll probably do so again before the sermon's ended. But Jesus is never recorded as laughing, even if perhaps he did tell jokes. Take the example of Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If you've never said that, it's not very surprising you're struggling with your habitual sin. You haven't mourned. It doesn't really matter to you. You need to follow the example of uh, Paul and Jesus in order to uh, be comforted. Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And that comes before his great calling. There will be comfort. It's a loaded term in the Bible. Jesus is himself the great comforter. He is the consolation. It's the same word of Israel. That uh, godly Israelites like Simeon have been longing. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Or as Isaiah 61 puts it, uh, that was Isaiah 40, this is Isaiah 61. The Messiah will come to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of despair. Jesus himself is the comfort. This is the joy unspeakable of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. So the essence of the gospel that goes all the way through life is the conviction of sin, poor in spirit, and mourning must precede comfort of salvation. That is partly future. Only the new heaven, the new earth, will there be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Revelation 21, verse 4. But it's also partly present for all Christians to experience this joy, this comfort. It is so paradoxical, contrary, that is, to common opinion 
I'm using the word paradoxical in this sermon like that in its literal sense, contrary to common opinion, contrary to common religious opinion today. You won't find these words in many religious organizations' mission statements. We are the blessed of the poor in spirit mission. Blessed are those who mourn. Step three. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus is saying that the meek will inherit the earth. That is, self-renunciation leads to world dominion. What a strange thing to say. What on earth is Jesus talking about? Here is what I think he's talking about. It's the next step. Poor in spirit, mourn, meek. In other words, Jesus is saying it's one thing to say I'm a sinner. It's another thing to really recognize that and experience that in our own lives and our own hearts and realize it's wrong. It's another thing to be able to accept someone else saying that to us. But the meek person can do that. You imagine, you're saying to yourself right now, yeah, okay, I am a sinner, pastor. Imagine this, after church, someone else comes up to notice that at this point in the sermon your head is bowed and you're feeling very sorry for yourself, you know. And they come up to you after the service in the uh, narthex out there, whatever that room is called back there, I always forget. I think it's narthex. And they come up to you afterwards they say, you know, I saw you doing that and by the way, you are a sinner. And not only that, you have sinned and let me tell you about it. What would our typical response to me? Let me show you who's a sinner. And of course, thereby, we do. But the meek person isn't like that. The word meek originally meant uh, and was used to mean, describe in one place, a war horse which had been well trained and so was now ready for battle. That horse was meek. So it's not weak. It can be very powerful, and indeed, it, this person inherits the earth. But they're not self-centered. They're God-centered now, truly. And one day, they will literally inherit the new heaven and the new earth. We will, one day, the meek. And even now, uh, in some regard, it can be true. I sometimes tell the illustration of a church I got to know for a while in Northern Ireland and preached out a few times uh, there. It had been planted in one of the roughest areas of that city, uh, there in in Belfast. And uh, I was, uh, one time after I was preached there, I was driven around the city and I saw all the bomb sites and the destroyed buildings. And this confused me because everyone in the church looked very well-to-do. They looked very... um, well, quite affluent, to be honest. And so I began to think to myself, well, that isn't right. Here's this church next to all these poor buildings, broken down people, and they look very well-to-do. They look very affluent. They look like their lives are together. They're happy families. How can that be? And then I was told the story. A few years ago, you see, there'd been a revival in this church. A lot of people have been converted, and their lives have been changed. And now their lives were well-ordered, and they were beginning to inherit the earth. Now, they're generous with their resources. 
But their lives were together. And it happens like that for the meek. Look at Abraham. What an example of meekness he is. There's Lot who wants to take the best land. What did Abraham do? Let him choose. And who inherited the earth? Abraham. Meek. Look at Moses. Moses was called in one place the meekest person in the world. And there in the context, uh, his close relatives were saying, Oh, look, aren't, those, uh, aren't there lots of other prophets here? Why should Moses get all the attention? Moses doesn't say a thing. God does something about it. You see, it comes back to truly believing that God is real. This morning, we're not just going through the motions. Actually, God right now can step into your life and transform it so that you'll be one of those who will inherit the earth. Being a meek person is believing that. That's what it means to be God-centered. It's actually believing the promises of God. Well, look at David. David, of course, was a warrior, a very strong man. But even he was actually, you can see, even at his moment of greatest sin, after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, (laughs) how does David respond when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan? Someone comes up to him and says, you're a sinner. What does he do? I'm going to show you who's a sinner. No. I have sinned. He was meek. That's him at his worst. (laughs) Look at him at his best. Saul, the king who David knew he had been anointed to replace, kept on attacking and abusing, and David refused to hurt Saul, but just waited on God for his time. Or look at Paul in in the New Testament. Look at him in relation to those churches who are ungrateful for his ministry. Paul defends himself, but he's not defensive uh, by and large, I think. He trusts God. He is meek. But then most of all, look at the Lord Jesus. Jesus alone is the model, the ultimate and true and perfect model of meekness. So what does Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, weary with the burden of self, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my training. And train you to be meek. Take my, take my training, my yoke upon you and learn from me. What? For I am meek and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So this rest, this inheritance is so closely connected to the experience of being meek. Why? It will be such a relief to have done with this self. It'd be such a great thing, wouldn't it? No longer need to be self-conscious. Wouldn't that be marvelous? No longer need to be defensive because we know the Lord is protecting us. In fact, I think the meek person, the truly meek person, is amazed that anyone should ever think anything nice about them at all. Doesn't mean they're weak. Many of these characters uh, we've described are very strong. Moses was a prince of Egypt. Abraham was rich. David was a warrior. He was a soldier. Paul was an intellectual. They were not weak. Actually, I think you could say, notice that none of these people naturally had any inclination to be meek at all. Certainly not Paul. How proud he would have been naturally, don't you think? Not David with all his vibrant energy. Not Moses, elite and aristocratic, prince of Egypt. Not Abraham, wealthy. Now, this quality of meekness 
is entirely spiritual. It's not about being nice. It is said that some people are nicer than others, but then again it is said so are some dogs. It's not a matter of breeding or genetics or your family background. This is something that can only come for those who have been born again of the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit in our lives, of emptying ourselves poor in spirit, mourning over our sin, and then discovering meekness. It's the fruit of His powerful presence. And the blessing is to be released from the prison of self that we would inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Step four. You begin to want it. You hunger and thirst. You don't want to come to church saying, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to turn up and listen for 45 minutes or so or however long he goes this morning and then I'll go back and get my brunch and, you know, whatever. And You're actually hungering and thirsting. Just think of what Jesus is saying here. It's a sort of stro- starving, isn't it? Parched mouth, thirsty. Empty belly, rumbling. So much so you'd like to eat the, the leather off the, off the soles of your shoes. Hungry. Thirsty. Jesus is saying, if you really want God like that, you'll find him. If you really want righteousness like that, you'll find him. If you really want to be justified like that, you will be. I quite like the cartoon I came across once of a typical male couch potato lounging in front of the TV with beer cans and chip bags and remote controls sprawled everywhere and wearing a T-shirt saying, free to do whatever I want. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose so. Except what you want becomes enslaving. Our desires define us. And when those desires are debilitating, we become debilitated. That hunger and thirsting will not satisfy. The word satisfy here is so interesting. It originally just meant the kind of food that was given to cattle. The New Testament is used more generally of food and, or filling. In the book of Revelation, the same word is used to describe how the birds of the air gorge themselves. Elsewhere, it sometimes refers to grass being given uh, cattle, uh, uh, cattle food, it being cattle food. Why this word here? I think we're intended to have this sense of, of satisfaction, of filling, to overflowing, just pouring out or gorging. <laughs> you want God like that? You will be filled. This righteousness will be given to you. God himself is saying, that is blessed. That is happy. That's truly happy. Whether it always feels happy or not, it is. That is truly successful. 
not the self-orientation of so much of modern Christianity, but the true blessing of hungering for God himself, for righteousness itself. When I think of being filled to overflowing, I think of some of the humorous modes of transport I took while traveling in Central Asia. The subway system was a riot. When the doors opened and people came out, it was like watching popcorn sort of exploding when you take the lid off the can. And people would literally squeeze into the subway cars. You'd, you'd, you'd watch people taking kind of running shoves to force their way in. And even the airplanes weren't much different. I've been on airplanes where the phrase standing room only applied and was applied. People hanging over onto the overhead luggage rack like on a bus and chickens on the flight squeezed into the corners. And One time I saw someone putting jet fuel into the tiny plane we were about to squeeze onto and overfilling it so there was jet fuel all over the runway. That's a little bit unnerving. It's, it's highly flammable stuff, I wanted to say. Another time I saw someone take an open bottle of whiskey on a tray with shot glasses into the pilot mid-flight. <laughs> I guess everyone was full to overflowing. But unlike that, this hunger and thirst will be satiated, satisfied. I wonder whether you are satisfied. I wonder what you're hungering and thirsting for. (laughs) And how you have found it so dissatisfying. And how you always want more of it and it's never enough and it leads to worse situations and worse and the only way to cure an unhealthy addiction is to find a healthy one (laughs) and the only person the only thing is the righteousness of God himself to be desired that's the only healthy addiction You hunger and thirst for righteousness, he will fill you to overflowing. And you want more and more of the same, and there'll be more and more and more on offer. And you'll be constantly more and more satisfied. It is paradoxical in the sense of contrary to common opinion, common religious opinion. We think life is most likely to be blessed if we assert ourselves and keep ourselves in the center of gravity, actually the contrary to such opinions. The truly happy person, the truly blessed person, is the person who is poor in spirit and therefore who mourns and therefore is meek and therefore hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Such a person will be satisfied, inherit the earth, comforted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.
Let's pray together. Jesus, uh, we uh, say sorry for our pride, our spiritual pride. We recognize our poverty of spirit. Our Lord Jesus, we, um, we don't just recognize that, we want to do something about that we look at that and we mourn over that why are we like that how terrible it is that we are like that as we do that we begin to find the work of your spirit not our spirit your spirit transform us to center upon you and your person and your gospel, that we then are meek. And that we then hunger and thirst for righteousness. Father God, I pray that these transformative words would by your spirit do the work which they are intended to do and break us that we might be healed. In the name of Jesus, amen.